Hello and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is leading a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Madeline, and this week, guest podcaster Kanisha and I spoke with NPR correspondent Martin Costi, who has been covering law enforcement and privacy over the past seven years. The big story, as he sees it, is the gap between perception and reality when it comes to understanding the complexities of law enforcement and public safety, and the gavelizing impact of video and social media. Seeing something fundamentally changes the dynamic, and throws lighter fluid on the issue. This has radically changed what the public perceives to be as acceptable use of force. Video illuminates, and it also distorts. Public perception of the number of people shot by police is far higher than the reality. There are about 800,000 police officers in the U.S. and about 3 to 4 million criminal contacts per year. The vast majority of officers never shoot their guns. That said, of course, any unnecessary killings are tragedies to be avoided to greatest extents as possible. So what can we do? What are we, as a society, willing to accept? With 18,000 independent police departments across the U.S., Martin encourages us not to think about the police as a monolithic entity, but rather to think about a system of policing. So that's what we strove to do in this conversation. Thank you for joining us. Hi, my name is Madeline Mays. I'm a high school sophomore from Brooklyn, New York, and um, I'm a Y voter, a civic fellow, and of course, a podcaster here on the round table. And um, I'm really passionate about, of course, cross-partisanship, but also what I call civic, um, sorry, community building and amplifying, which I think definitely works coincide with um, criminal justice reform. Um, something that's actually a topic I'm not extremely familiar about. Uh, I'm a little bit uh, hesitant to say, I think unlike my generation for the most part, um, but I'm excited to have this conversation today. Hi, I'm Kanisha. I'm also a sophomore from Queens, New York. Um, I'm a Y voter and a guest podcaster. And actually at Y Vote, I'm a peer leader for the Criminal Justice Action Group. So I'm definitely very excited to jump into this conversation and get your insights on it, Martin. And um, just a bit of background, I feel that the criminal justice system is probably one of the most flawed institutions in our country. And it's often so overlooked because people feel that the criminal justice system doesn't influence them, but the inequities of the criminal justice system pollute aspects of our everyday lives which means that even though we see it as such a minute issue, it is really amplified in everything that we do. So I'm really excited to delve into this. My name is Martin Costi. I'm a correspondent for NPR um, and my beat is uh, law enforcement as part of a larger criminal justice group of reporters. There are four of us for NPR um, in, uh, in-house and then we also work with them um, affiliate stations, public radio affiliate stations, uh, which have reporters that also cover criminal justice issues. So we kind of work as a unit called the Criminal Justice Collaborative. And um, that's what I've been doing for at least six or seven years since before Ferguson. And uh, the beat just uh, never quits. So I guess six and seven years, that's a pretty long time to be covering criminal justice reform and law enforcement. Um, I'm really curious, like, you covering this topic, it's definitely a heavy topic to cover for so long. Um, what are like the different, how have you seen like 
this issue evolve and change over this time period? Um, like the patterns that you've noticed or um, any like specific specifics like that that you could tell us about more generally? Well, I think, um, I think the big story in terms of, of coverage or, or the, the, the reporting on criminal justice for the last almost decade has been sort of the lag between perception and reality um, and, and the, 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 the sort of um, galvanizing effect of video. Um, you, you, from, a, from a career police officer's point of view, you know, he or she might say, you know, it's so weird that everyone's so intense on this right now when things were so much worse, you know, when I was coming up or my dad or mom was coming up, you know, before me, because oftentimes policing is a family thing, um, you know, the, the, the corruption that used to happen in the 70s and 80s, you know, and the, you know, things got a lot more professional and uh, we have these use of force policies and, and, and things just aren't as nuts as they were before, but now everyone's angry. Why is that? Well, a simple answer to that, but I think there's a lot of truth to it is video. Um, seeing something happen changes the dynamic politically. And uh, the moment in about 2010, 2011, when both the body cameras started catching on, there was still a pretty small number at that point, but it was starting. I remember doing a story in 2011 about there's this new idea of putting a camera on the police officer to capture everything he or she does. Um, you know, but that, but of course, even more so the personal video camera in everybody's pocket that started becoming common around 2010. Um, that's, that's what happened in some ways. Um, all these moments got captured, they got sliced and diced. Um, uh, they were presented in, you know, in isolation sometimes, sometimes in context, uh, but that that was like lighter fluid on the whole thing. And I think that's what that's where that's one of the major reasons. Um, I think there's still such a cultural disconnect between people who maybe have law enforcement in, in their lives or in their families' lives or in their background and people who don't um, is is that sort of why now question. And, you know, and I think video, yeah, you know, the, and the video we can't we can't. Uh, unscramble that egg video is not going to be part of, of, of law enforcement. It always will be from now on. Um, that has just changed radically what the public's tolerance is, um, what the public's appetite is for uh, use of force and, and other aspects of policing. Um, so I, I guess I think that's the that's the big sort of media, at least, story about uh, law enforcement for the last decade. I think that's, that's actually really interesting. My dad is a police officer in the NYPD. And um, growing up, I always like was very proud of that because I always like knew that, I don't know, if something were to happen, I felt protected or whatever. Um, but I actually didn't like I never knew what his job actually consisted of. Like he'd come home and tell stories about some crazy thing that happened today or um, some person that he was talking to or some something, some crazy story of some sorts. Um, but I never like really understood, like, I never knew like, well, how much of policing is like what we see on TV and in shows and television and how much of it is like what we see online and on Instagram and on all over social media. And like, how do we know that this isn't happening all the time or it isn't like a commonality for police everywhere. And it's just like, an, an isolated uh, situation. Mm -hmm. and I think that that's something that I've actually been thinking a lot about lately, because like, of course, like I know my dad, he became a police officer. He immigrated here when he was 
18 or 19 and he's always been like a big like like a like he's kind of like a teddy bear you know he just mm -hmm. wants to like hug everyone and keep everyone protected and I know that that's really fortunate that there are police officers out there like that but again I don't know how much this is like the whole bigger picture and I think that in that sense video has been revolutionizing right. um, but but video also um, can be distorting, right? Because it 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 you know uh, there was a survey. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but there was a survey of Democrats and Republicans uh, recently um, on what their assumptions or what they remembered or what they thought they knew about the numbers of people shot and killed by police or unarmed people shot and killed by police. And you know, the, the, depending, on the, the, I think the point of the survey was showing that Democrats thought it was far higher than Republicans, but both of them were actually, I think, if I remember this correctly, way higher than the, than the actual number, right? And it's because we're, you know, we're media saturated, we, we remember video, it occupies space in our, in our brains. And I mean, you know, the, there are, depending on how you count officers, about 800,000 sworn officers in the country. Um, there are probably 300, 400 million police contacts a year um, uh, with a criminal aspect involved. Um, and yet the vast majority of police officers never shoot their gun their entire career. So, you know, in, in outside of a, a firing range. Um, so the question is, what do we, you know, we as a society, what are we, what's our sense of proportion? What's our sense of scale? How much, um, how much do we see the particular as representing the, the whole uh, and I don't have answers for those things, but I think that's what video has changed. Video has changed our understanding of what's happening um, just because we're a visual species and it's a visual medium. Almost everything is on the internet now, so. Yeah, so shifting gears a little bit, as mm -hmm. an NPR correspondent, you cover law enforcement and privacy. So how has your coverage of the criminal justice system affected your personal views on it? On on uh, law, law enforcement, on privacy, on both? On... on essentially anything regarding criminal justice. Hmm. Um, I think I probably came into this beat, I don't know, it's hard for me to step out of myself and understand, and, and you know, it, it's so hard to understand your own biases and your own, and your own assumptions about things. But I think that I probably was a lot more critical of policing as an institution before I got to understand some of the complexities and the diversity of institutions inside of policing. And I think complexity always mellows things, right? I mean, when you're trying to understand something, as, as you start to understand, well, just, I mean, in, for example, in policing, there's um, something like 18,000 separate police departments and agencies in the country. And um, very, very, there's almost no centralization. Um, and so, you know, I guess they, I think I started, I stopped thinking about the police as the police, like it was one entity. And I started to think of this sort of herding cat situation where a lot of this is organic out of our political history. It was very regional, very much dependent on local politics. Um, uh, you know, uh, the pay of a cop in the South is lower than the pay of a cop in a big city in the North by a lot. And that really changes the kind of people uh, and their backgrounds who are in policing those different places. And it just the more of those complicating factors I started to learn as necess necessary sort of baseline information to cover the beat, the more I kind of stopped thinking of policing as a single thing. Um, I don't know if that answers the question. 
That was great. And you're talking about all of these insights you've gained from your job. So mm -hmm. how have these, I guess, which of these insights has been the most surprising to you or affected your worldview the most drastically? It's a very specific thing. I don't think it's most, I can't think, I, don't hold me to the most part of your question, but um, like so, something that really surprised me was um, I did a story a few years ago about police dogs and how dogs are used by police. And I was shocked, frankly, by um, how much they're abused. Uh, not the dogs are abused, but how the use of dogs are abused by some police officers to um, either get probable cause to search some, somebody um, with, with false alerting by the dogs um, or uh, uh, just how, how reliant some police departments have become on the other aspect of dogs, which is using them as a compliance technique. Uh, um, just, I, some, we did a, we, we got some video, uh, body camera video from San Diego on, on police there using, uh, a dog to subdue a man who was completely naked. He was high on LSD or something who was sort of being, obstreperous but he was he was naked he just like climbed out of an arroyo somewhere in southern california and the cops were waiting from the top and and instead of like grabbing him i mean he couldn't have had a weapon that was really clear from the video um they they have this dog they use this dog as a remote control pain compliance method and he totally chews up his leg and and the more I looked into it, the more I realized that was not that unusual. And this, this sense of standoffishness of cops sort of using either a gun or a, or a dog, or in some cases a taser inappropriately to subdue someone because they either weren't trained or weren't prepared to put hands on someone. I didn't know that happened. And that, that, that changed, that, that, that kind of changed the way I looked at a lot of these encounters I hear about. I appreciate the dip into introspection, but... Um... <laughs> I guess beyond that, um, again, going a bit more into your personal views on the criminal justice system, and because you've obviously explored it so intimately through your work, in your opinion, what aspect of it needs the most reform and what really needs changing? Mm, well, I got to be careful here. I'm not, I cover this beat, so I, I, I don't want to take a position as advocating for a certain approach. Um, I will say that I have observed a lot of consensus on different sides of the political spectrum uh, around the idea that American police need more training. Um, that in a lot of ways, you almost can't blame the, official, the, the individual cops uh, for the fact that they are so much more poorly trained than their, their counterparts in other countries, other rich countries. Uh, it, it's, it's not even, you can't even compare some of the, uh, the differences there. Uh, and I think people on the left and the right um, who understand this topic sort of agree on that. Uh, uh, and then that raises an interesting or a problem in the, in the era of defunding. Well, um, it could be you end up defunding some of the things you actually need, which is more training, um, that sort of thing. So it, 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 I wouldn't necessarily say I endorse one approach, but I, I would assume that most experts in policing would agree that more and better quality training it's probably something they all agree on. And, and I, th I think you could probably back that without a lot of controversy. I think that that's a really interesting point, especially because I think the majority of my generation is in, would be in favor for defunding the police. Although I do understand a side that might say, well, why aren't we giving more attention to this department? 
and making sure that everything is more curated and cautiously um, looked at and developed in order to make sure that we're not in a situation in which we need to defund them. Mm. Um, so I think I'm, that's- But, but, but the, to argue with myself a little bit, the, 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 the flip side of just saying, we, we gotta be careful not to defund them so we don't defund training, for example, is you know historically, like a lot of public sector professions, um, there's a lot of question about where the money goes. Um, and there's questions of union power and that kind of thing. So this is a political fight and it's broad strokes. And sometimes the fine tuning that you want to do is almost impossible when you're, you know, and, and maybe, maybe, you know, uh, an entity, you know, maybe a, a group of activists who want better policing, maybe it's smart tactically for them to be pushing for defunding as a way of pushing for different kinds of funding. Um, maybe that's the only leverage they would have against say the police union in their city. Um, so you know, defunding isn't necessarily oppositional to better training or more expensive training or more frequent training, but in the given the political realities of the um, give and take of City Hall, maybe that's how you push for one or the other is by threatening to cut the whole thing. I don't know, um, but it's it's messy. <laughs> it's very messy. Yeah, so um, it says on your profile that you've reported on the government's warrantless wiretapping practices and other data collection practices. So can you just elaborate on what was that experience like, maybe narrowing in on what's investigative journalism like in general, and how do you kind of navigate um, those ethical dilemmas when it comes to investigating such sensitive topics? Ethical uh, dilemmas you mean in terms of having information that the government doesn't want publicized? Is that which uh, ethical much, dilemma? Yeah, pretty much anything that you feel like for, an, for example, an experience that you've had to ponder, like, is this okay to do? Um, mm. Where do I draw my boundaries? Something mm. like that. Well, that was a while ago. I mean, that was the late 2000s uh, was um, when that, that whole NSA question came up. Um, uh, I mean, I did more privacy reporting after that. Uh, that's sort of how I got into privacy uh, was 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 reporting on that. Um, I mean, I think this information always comes out in some form eventually. Uh, so the question really ethically for reporters is how how much are we accelerating that process? <laughs> um, I, I I'm a big, you know, Big defender, a big believer in, in in maximum information, free speech, and if the government doesn't want uh, uh, something um, revealed, they got to make a really, 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 really good case for it. Um, uh, I, I think it's um, it's it's probably their their problem, not mine. If they if I have information they <laughs> don't want released, um, but I mean, if, if is that the kind of thing you're asking about ethically, the, the sort of secret information? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know if that, that answers your question, but I, I, I just believe sunlight is, uh, to quote the cliche, the best disinfectant. And uh, the more we know about, especially, uh, you know, uh, mass data collection and mass uh, analysis of data, which is really the question there, um, uh, the better. On a similar vein, I think that, um, an issue that is really big among youth, I think particularly, is um, like taking op-eds for fact 
And I think that's a common thread in when it comes to law enforcement and criminal justice reform. Um, I think like it's a common thread here on our podcast talking about how um, youth has a tendency to reshare posts on social media without actually making sure that it's coming from a reliable source um, or the spread of articles that are op-eds and just taking it for fact. Um, I'm wondering like how is like I don't know exactly how to phrase this question but think that media has obviously has a huge role on how public how people advocate for their beliefs that can be tend to that can tend to be pretty strong or Mm -hmm. uh, powerful when it comes to criminal justice reform and law enforcement and i'm i wonder if you could just like take a minute or however long to just analyze the correlation between media and activism in that sense and if you have noticed any issues arising with the two, um, or if there's any sense that media is doing maybe a little bit more harm than they should be in this topic. No, no, journalism is perfect. We've never done anything wrong. <laughs> um, uh, first of all, don't beat up the youth. Uh, I don't think I don't think uh, the current young generation is is more at fault at. Um, at this than the older generation, uh, frankly, uh, I, I see the same thing, maybe in different platforms, whether it be television and your favorite network uh, or online. Uh, it, it's, uh, there is, I believe, just a human tendency. Um, it's, it's just, I think there's, there's like cognitive um, science studies on this. I mean, we, we, we like, and we are gravitate toward source of information that confirm what we prefer to think about the world or what our position is, things that don't, versions of the of reality that are um, least confrontational to how we see the world. And I, I just think, I think that's across the board. I don't care how old you are. Um, the problem in a nutshell, see if I can synthesize this, we have a crisis in that, in, in that the miracle of the internet has also basically unleashed, has made that completely, it's, it's like being in a, um, you know how you, you get fat if you're surrounded by easy fattening foods, right? We are now in the world's biggest you know, McDonald's of information. And um, we, because, you know, it used to be there were three, three network TV uh, news broadcasts or a handful, maybe one or two papers in your, in your city, uh, maybe a few more papers. Um, but, you know, the, the broadcasters especially had to play it down the middle because they didn't want to alienate one audience or the other. So there was this more sense of objectivity, of balance. Now, Frankly, um, the pressure is on for every outlet, every medium, including NPR, to appeal to its base, as a politician would say, to write the news in a version that is most pleasing to the people they already know they have, because that's more clicks. Um, And the crisis we're in is that because of the miracle of the internet, you can basically seek out uh, the version of the world you like, um, and and you're basically rewarding news media who do that to you, you know, for you. So it's, I mean, it's for a media, for a news, for a newsroom to try to be balanced is it takes, it it takes courage right now. It takes a lot of courage and almost um, willpower to try to stay neutral or try to stay objective because it's so much easier to just appeal to your base and get all the clicks rushing in one side or the other. Um, and that, and, and it's, I don't know what the solution is because, you know, we're not, we can't just decree that there only be a couple of newspapers online or a couple of um, sources of, of news. That's just not going to happen. Um, 
you know, and and I and the corollary, the other part of this is there is sort of a generational divide on this inside of newsrooms, in that old guard, and I guess I'm old guard, um, you know, who came up through a time when we still had more of a sense of that objectivity thing being idealized. Um, we cling to that, and I think we should actually. <laughs> but it's it's been under attack for a long time for the last 10, 15 years that objectivity is a myth and all that. Well, yes, objectivity as an outcome is almost impossible to achieve. Nobody's perfectly objective. People rarely are, frankly. But objectivity can still be a self-discipline. Reporters should still have sort of a daily sort of reminder. I'm trying to be objective here. And for me, object, it's not so much whether my the news that I'm writing is objective in the output. The real question is, was the process, was there enough self-awareness and honesty about my own biases, about my own thought patterns when I pursued this story when I reported it to make sure I was compensating for what I know to be my biases. That that to me is what objectivity is. It's, it's a form of self-discipline. And that's less and less in fashion. Um, there is a real conflict over that. And frankly, if you decide to, if you embrace the kind of newer idea that objectivity is sort of a lost cause and kind of ridiculous, you're probably gonna make more money in media. Um, if you decide to just embrace one side and and start with politics and find the facts to fit it, you're gonna make more money. Yeah, thank you so much for that insight into just how journalism has evolved over the last few years. And um, I guess maybe delving a bit more into your own career and your own experience with journalism. So you've clearly investigated and reported on a plethora of topics. So just can you tell us maybe what was in your opinion, the most interesting, fascinating or powerful report that you had to do? I mean, on the human level, I, I used to be a foreign correspondent. I, um, and uh, I mean, you know, you can't, you know, when you go to a natural disaster, I mean, it's, it's um, you know, I was in Haiti after the, the earthquake. Um, actually, I was in Haiti a couple of times. And I mean, it just, it, the, 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 the scale of human suffering and something like that is, is, is completely humbling. And you, you know, it changes for a long time, any sense of importance of the day-to-day -day stuff you cover normally. Um, so I'd say, I'd say probably the Haiti earthquake, um, uh, probably, uh, you know, Katrina, um, I did co help cover that and kind of the rebuilding of, of New Orleans. Um, uh, I've been to a few uh, mass shootings and um, I'd rather not think about those too much. <laughs> Um, Las Vegas and places like that. Um, but, you know, the, it's those stories that, that um, uh, in some ways, nothing, no one can do anything about it. It's done. It's horrible. And you almost feel like, well, why am I here? Um, uh, <laughs> it, it, you get a real sense of almost uh, of, of, of helpless, helplessness in some of those situations. But uh, I mean, you gotta, you gotta, you should be there. People do, do need to know about what's happening, but uh it feels kind of pathetic <laughs> that you're you're trying to put together this edited perfect little piece of radio, you know, when uh, tens of thousands of people just died. I'd like to ask the podcasters, since they're New Yorkers, um, uh, I'm actually right now in the middle of a story that'll air uh, tomorrow afternoon, I think, unless something gets moved, um, about just sort of the, you know, the reality and the perceptions of the violent crime surge of the last year. Um, and, you know, the numbers, you look at just the numbers there are pretty concerning, especially places like New York, which had really beaten down the um, number of, uh, of shooting incidents, especially. Uh, and now we see these numbers just 
shooting up, not, not just summer increase, but just for a whole year now. Uh, is that just a statistic to you or do you see that in your life? Does that affect your life in a way that that's concrete? Um, well, I actually haven't been much out of my house, um, particularly in the last year. Um, but I, any time that there has always uh, has uh, been supposed like crime upticks, I personally never really experience anything firsthand or see anything firsthand. Um, but I will say, my my dad has been to a lot of protests lately. My dad, I haven't seen him in a few days. He has actually been. Um, He's been working at synagogues uh, parked outside, uh, preventing any attacks on there. So I guess I experienced that on an, an indirect level. Um, it is really concerning though. Um, I still get worried, um, not just for um, like my dad being exposed to that, but just because of the crazy amounts of um, population that are being affected by it. Um, we hear stories about one criminal or one shooter, but behind that, there are more people that are being affected by that, whether it's three people or 300 people that are being affected by what's happening. Um, so my answer is a little bit complicated. It's like a yes and no, but it's definitely concerning that I don't get to see it firsthand. Like not concerning that I'm not a part of it, but concerning that this is all happening and I'm basically unaware. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, as for me, I think for me, how that usually materializes is similar to Madeline. I don't think I'm ever really directly affected by it, even though I think I've definitely witnessed um, the upticks of violence and how those and the effects that they can have on neighborhoods and other parts of New York. But I don't think I really have to confront that on a day-to-day -day basis. But I will say, um, especially when we think about upticks in violence and how they coincide with social justice movements, specifically when we think about protests, whether they be peaceful protests or riots, you see a real intersectionality with these upticks in violence, whether that be police brutality, whether that be something, I guess, on the civilians part. and these huge movements for change as we're kind of seeing now with the protests because of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I hadn't actually thought about the uh, overseas part of it. I was thinking more yeah. about um, the day-to-day -day crime. So but yeah, I okay. guess when I think of that, usually um, the violence has never really affected me, but it does kind of drive me to one, exercise my own voice. Like last June, I decided to actually take part in the BLM protest because of what was going on and really not only help support this effort, but see for myself what everything was essentially all about and get to help me distinguish between these peaceful protests and what we're seeing publicized and the quote-unquote violent riots that I'm constantly seeing publicized on the news. So I don't think that even though I'm not directly affected by violence, it's definitely a driving factor for me to want to help support these movements or educate myself on them. Either one of you, just to follow up, has, has um, just whatever is in the air and whatever you think is, re is really going on, has it affected sort of where you feel safe going or where you go? Has it affected your routine at all? I mean, Madeline says she stays home mainly, so maybe not, but, uh, you know, it, I'm just kind of wondering, you know, obviously whenever you talk about crime stats, most people don't see it firsthand, you're right, but it affects sort of their impression of a place, like the subway in New York, big one right now. You know, has it affected that for either one of you or, or is it life kind of the same as it was? Well, I, for me, um, I'm concerned. I, from the recent shooting in Times Square, 
um, that has definitely affected me, especially because it occurred outside a store that I would normally go to um, and that I want to in the future. Um, mm. But maybe I'm making less plans with my friends to go into Times Square nowadays. Um, I think that it definitely, I mean, although I'm home, it definitely still frightens me that it could be anywhere that this could be happening. It doesn't necessarily need to be in a heavily populated place like Times Square. It could be in my own neighborhood. It could be down the street and you just never know who you're walking by or what's happening behind the scenes of situations that you're just ignoring. Um, so that's what concerns me. Yeah, for me, it's definitely maybe more vigilant about um, public transportation, specifically the subways, just because there has been a lot of, I'm sure people have heard about that serial killer that was literally on loose um, in subway a few months ago. But yeah, I think especially how it coincides with COVID protocols, social distancing in public transportation, stations are normally a lot less crowded and the subways and trains themselves are a lot less crowded, which, you know, it, looking at it from a public health perspective should be a good thing, but when you look at it from a safety perspective or just one's conscience when riding the subway, it definitely makes me a lot more a lot more worried being on an empty subway cart or uh -huh. being with one person there on the subway and not having anyone surround you to help yeah, you in a possibly right. dangerous situation. I hadn't um, thought I, that part through. That's yeah. an interesting point. Yeah. It's definitely oh. just made me, I think, a lot more vigilant and want to walk a lot more than I take the train. That's all for today, friends. I'm editor Sarita Adabala signing off for all of us at Next Generation Politics. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends. Or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded. Thanks for listening.